if you weren't here last week, um, we just started a brand new series this Christmas that we simply have called His Wonderful Life. And I was sharing with everyone last week that It's a Wonderful Life is our family's favorite Christmas movie. We we love it, and um, at some point every Christmas season, we will take the time as a family to sit down and watch it together. We love it and have for many years. Um, if you have never seen it before, basically the whole movie boils down to one Christmas Eve evening where George Bailey, the uh, hero of the movie, is actually overwhelmed with despair um, He has admittedly reached the end of his rope. Life has not worked out the way that he had envisioned it. It hasn't worked out the way that he had dreamed, the way that he thought it was going to be, imagined it to be. Feels like he hasn't really made any significant contribution to this world at all. And you may remember, if you again saw it, that earlier that evening, that was even accentuated by the words of Mr. Potter, who said, you are better off dead than you are alive. And he actually finds himself contemplating suicide when there is angelic intervention. And he is given a rare opportunity to actually see what the world would have been like had he never been born. And it's only at this time that he begins to realize that he actually had a wonderful life, that he had had um, a much greater impact than he could have ever possibly imagined, and that his contributions were great. And so in the final scene, he is reconciled to his family, to his friends. Everything that was lost comes back to him, and they all live happily ever after, as they always do in Hollywood. As I shared with you last week, it's a very heartwarming show. It will leave you warm and fuzzy inside when you're finished, but it's not true. It's not reality. Because the truth is that rarely, if ever, does life ever work out that neatly, that nicely. Even when things work out, there's always residual damage. There's always some scars, there's always regret, there's always some bent emotion and pain that is left behind because life is cruel, life is painful, life is very unforgiving that way. In fact, Jesus put it this way. He said that life is kind of like a wolf, that there is an enemy out there that is a thief that has come for no other reason than to steal, to kill, and destroy. But right on the heels of that, Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And obviously what Jesus was saying there was not only that he had come to give us life, but that he came to give us eternal life. That he came to give us life that will never end. A a greater, richer life than what we could ever possibly imagine. And certainly when Jesus came, he offered up his life as a sacrifice and provided for mankind to actually be born again. To be born a second time. This time 
time, not by the will of man, but by the will of the Spirit of God. And when we're born the second time, we become the sons and the daughters of the Most High God, and we become joint heirs with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we inherit that eternal life forevermore in Jesus' name. And so the the beauty of His wonderful life is that our lives aren't that much, that our lives aren't that wonderful, but at any moment we can exchange our life for His life and have an abundant life in Jesus' name. Isn't it interesting? I was thinking about it even this morning that Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you'll lose your life for my sake, you will gain life in Jesus' mighty name. So if you haven't already done that, my prayer is at some point this Christmas season, you'll surrender your life and embrace his wonderful life in Jesus' name. Would you turn to your neighbor and tell him his life is wonderful. Amen. If you've ever seen the movie, again, It's a Wonderful Life, um, you know that it begins with an aerial shot of the fictional town Bedford Falls. And you see the snow falling But immediately we hear the cries of family and friends in prayer to God asking him to intervene in George Bailey's life. You hear children, you hear sons and daughters, family and friends, as they, as one voice, lift up their prayers to God and ask for God to intervene in George Bailey's life, knowing the significant pain that he's experiencing. Now, I'll be the first one to admit that all of their prayers are not theologically accurate. They're not theologically correct. But theologically, theological accuracy aside, it is a reminder to every one of us of the power and the importance of prayer. Isn't it amazing that even men and women who are skeptics of the existence of God in a time of critical pain will cry out to God and say, I don't know if you're there, but if you are, would you hear my cry today? But if you are a serious follower of Jesus Christ, if you take your faith seriously, and I say that in all honesty because, listen, I've been around a long time. I know that not everyone that shows up on Sunday morning is taking their faith seriously. But if you take faith seriously and you are seeking to grow and develop in your walk with God and your relationship with Him then you know that there are few things that offer greater comfort when you're going through a crisis than when someone comes to you and says, I'm praying for you. Especially when that individual takes their walk with God as seriously as you do. I mean, let's be honest. There are some people that come and say, I'm praying for you. And it's like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. It's not really that big of a deal because you know that they're not really walking with God. But boy, there are some people that when they say they're praying for you, you know by watching their life that these are men and women who seek the face of God and that by their example, you know that God is actually hearing their prayers. And there are few things in this life that can comfort you in a time of tragedy more than when a godly man or a godly woman comes up to you and says, I'm praying for you. I'll never forget this. It was 19 years ago. It's Hard for me to believe it's been that long already. 
But I went through the lowest time in my life. And I've mentioned this at times. I wouldn't speak of it until about five years after it all happened. But I went through the lowest time that I had ever experienced in my life. There were some things that were happening in the church, but it was mostly behind the scenes. And there were very few people that actually knew everything that was going on. But it felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulder. I had never been in such a time of absolute despair and depression. I've said in the past that at that time, I felt like... I was as close as I had ever been to a nervous or to an emotional breakdown. There were some mornings that I would wake up weeping. I would wake up in the morning crying. And then about an hour later, I'd feel better. And then an hour later, I'd be crying again. I was just messed up. And at that lowest point, I just felt like I was all alone. How many have ever felt like you were all alone? Now, I know looking back over it, I wasn't alone. But when you get to that level of despair, no one can tell you that they're with you. It just feels like you're all alone. And some people will say, well, Kathy certainly was with you. Yes, but again, at that low point, I just felt, well, the only reason she's here is she's married to me. And if there was another train, she'd probably be on it. You know, that's just how you get when you're at that level of depression and anxiety. And I, I just felt all alone. And I will never forget one Wednesday night, I came in to the old sanctuary to do the Bible study that Wednesday night. And that's why I would just say this. You should come to church every time the doors are open because you don't know when God's going to meet you. You know, you just think that it's not a big deal for you to show up at other services, but you never know what God has planned for you at any given moment. And on that Wednesday night, I didn't feel like being there, but I had an obligation and I was going to meet it. And I went to the pulpit that night and I began to teach, but there was a war raging in my mind. The whole time that I'm speaking, I'm feeling like a hypocrite because I am so depressed and I'm so anxious and I feel like I'm so alone. But while I was teaching, I looked up and I'm looking at the audience and my eyes went to an individual, a man that was sitting in the back. And I'm not going to tell you the Lord said this, but it was as if the Lord spoke to my heart in that moment and said, when you're done, I want you to go back and ask him to pray for you. And so I waited, I finished up the the lesson that night and I went back to him and I went up and said, you know, I know that we don't know each other that well. He wasn't a deacon, he wasn't an elder. I said, we don't know each other that well, we've only spoken a couple of times. And I said, but I am going through the most difficult season of my life. And I feel all alone. And I don't feel like I can go to anyone. But all I can tell you is that tonight, I felt like the Lord say to come to you and ask you if you'd pray for me. And I'll never forget his words. He looked up at me and he said, I have been praying for you. And I was just waiting for you to come to me. And I'm going to tell you, that that moment began my recovery. It was at that moment when God began to restore my heart and my mind in Jesus' name. And I will never forget when he said those words, there was a wave of peace that came upon my heart and my mind. First of all, because I knew someone was praying for me. But secondly, Because all during that time, I felt that God wasn't hearing anything I was saying. That all of my prayer was wasted. But in that moment, I realized 
that God had been answering my prayer all along because he was talking to another man to pray for me and that God may have been setting the stage when I didn't even know it. Can I just tell you, if you are committed to righteousness, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, God has promised to hear your prayers. And even when it feels like he's not listening, God is always up to something because it's impossible for God to do nothing on behalf of the righteous. So don't give up praying in Jesus' name. Can you give God the praise if you believe that this morning? And so again, if you take your faith seriously, then there is There are very few things that are more comforting than knowing that there are people who are praying and interceding on your behalf. But let's be honest today. Even then, there are times when men and women fail to pray for us the way they should. We're only human. We get caught up in our lives and it becomes a cliche to say, I'm praying for you. But we all have dropped the ball at various times. There are times when it feels like no one is praying for you. But there are times when it's true. No one is praying for you. I was even reminded of that this week when I considered the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, here is Jesus on the night that he is betrayed. And he gathers up his disciples and he heads to the garden of Gethsemane. And he says to them along the way, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Wait with me, watch with me, pray with me. Even Christ, the son of the living God, realized in that final hour before the cross that he needed those to gather around him and pray pray with him, but even his closest friends fell asleep on the watch and could not pray for him. And there will be times when it feels like no one is praying for you, and it's very possible that there is no one praying for you. But every Christmas, I am reminded that there is at least one person who is always praying for you and has never stopped and will never stop praying for you. I'm reminded at Christmas that there is one who has been praying for you the moment you arrived on this planet and will not cease to pray for you until you go home to be with the Lord. And I'm praying that at this Christmas season, you would remember that even when it feels like no one is praying for you, this one will never stop praying for you. You know, for 4,000 years, God put together a list of prophecies through the words of the prophets um, concerning the Messiah, concerning the, the coming Messiah, the one who would save Israel from their captivity and the one who would be a light to all of the Gentiles. And for 4,000 years, mankind watched and waited and wondered and dreamed and imagined of what life would be like once the Messiah finally came. And then 2,000 years ago, that prophecy, as John put it, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory What that is saying basically is that for 4,000 years prophecies went out concerning the coming Messiah. But 2,000 years ago, all of those prophecies, those words from God became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And through him, we actually were able to behold the glory or the character or the nature of God who had never been seen before. We have to identify who that word is. And in the first verse of John's gospel, chapter 1, he actually identifies that. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. In the beginning. In the beginning of what? In the beginning of time as we know it. In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning when God said, let there be light. In the beginning, and listen to this word, was the word. That's an important word. In the beginning was the word. In other words, the word already existed prior to the beginning of all things. Which he was saying to us that the Word literally is self-existent, it is eternal, that the Word had no beginning of days, had no end of days. And not only was the Word in the beginning, but the Word was with God and in fact the Word was God. And for the very first time, man is introduced to the idea that the Word is not just a philosophy, it is actually a person, it is Almighty God. He says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And immediately, and you got to kind of put yourself in the context of the first century, the Jews and the Gentiles would immediately have understood the significance of what was just said because they understood that word, word, well. In the Greek, and I don't typically give you the Greek words because I'm not a Greek scholar and I certainly don't need to impress you. But here I will give you the word. The word in the Greek for word here is the logos. And both Jew and Gentile was fully aware and intimately acquainted with that word logos. Because the Gentile philosophers believed in a logos that was an impersonal, powerful force or energy that was responsible for the creation of the universe, for heaven and of earth. The Jewish rabbis also believed in the logos, but they believed that the logos was simply the revelation from God. The word of God that came to the prophets of the Old Testament in order to reveal God, His commandments, his will and his purpose but John said no you need to understand he says to both of them the word is not an impersonal force or energy nor is it simply a revelation from God the word is God himself God is personal and he is behind all of creation In fact, in verses 2 through 4 there in John chapter 1 he says he was in the beginning listen to this with God I love that because he's making a distinction between the Word and God. We believe in a triune God, one God in three persons, and here he alludes to that. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John said, in the beginning the Word already was. The Word was with God, but the Word is God, and it is the Word that brought all things into existence and made all things in him was life and the light of men and this word again became flesh and dwelt among us and through him we beheld the glory of God 
That should humble every one of us. God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. As Matthew said, quoting Isaiah's prophecy in Matthew 1 and verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. How many of you are glad that God came to be with us? That he actually came here with us and dwelt among us for a while. That is literally what is being spoken here. That he tabernacled, that he tented here, and he dwelt with us. We know for 33 and a half years, it God with us. It's not God just watching us. It is not God just judging us. It is not God just inspecting us. It is God with us. It is God trying to understand the struggles of mankind and what we experience in these flesh and blood bodies. I love what John would write much later in his letter that we know as 1 John. In chapter 1 and verse 1 he says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we, eyewitnesses, write to you, those who are not, that your joy may be full. I love what John is saying here. John is saying, listen, we're not just talking about this impersonal word. We are talking about the word of God becoming flesh. And as eyewitnesses, we can tell you, we were able to see him with our eyes, hear him with our ears. We actually touched and handled him with our own hands. We were even able to place our hands into his nail-scarred hands and feet. And we declare to you today that he is the son of the living God almighty and it's through him you can have everlasting life he says we want you to know he's a personal God and can I tell you today this is the bedrock of our faith Christianity is not a philosophy it is not an intellectual exercise it is not a higher state of consciousness it is all about a relationship a real relationship with the living eternal almighty sovereign omnipotent omniscient omnipresent God and he was revealed by eyewitnesses so that you and I may know him as well. We serve a personal God who can be known in Jesus' mighty name. Can you give him all the praise here today? And now not only do we possess this life, but through the Spirit, we can actually have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. You may not know God that way, but I'm going to tell you that there are moments in your life when you know you are not alone. When you know that God is there and that he is intervening in your life. I'm wondering how many of you have ever sensed a moment when God came in and met you in a special way. He's a personal God. But the thought I had this week, and it was a thought that just dominated me throughout this week. Is that in coming in flesh and blood, 
not only does it mean that he can, that we can hear him, see him, and touch him, but coming in flesh and blood, he can hear, see, and touch us. That he came in flesh and blood because for him it wasn't enough to be heard, felt, touched, and seen. But he wanted to say, you know what? I hear, I see, and I'm touched by you. God is never, never throughout Scripture seen as distant, disengaged, detached, or uninterested. But rather, from the very beginning, God is seen as wanting to have a personal and intimate relationship with us. When we are first introduced to him in the Garden of Eden, we read how he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. And even when that was lost, all you see throughout the Old Testament is God pressing in closer to man. God has always wanted to know us and have us know him and to know that he knows us. God sees you right now where you are. He knows exactly what you are going through. He hears your cry. And he hears your heart breaking. And he is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. Moved with compassion towards you. God wants to be known. That's for sure. But he also wants us to know that he knows us. He loves you. And he came in a flesh and blood body because he wants to know you and to have you know that he knows you. And John said, these things I've written to you so that your joy may be full. Can I tell you there is only one way to have joy and that is through a personal relationship with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, if, you're hap- if you are looking for happiness, there are many, many venues that you can explore happiness with. But if you want a true, sustained joy in your heart, there's only one way. And that is a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And John said, it's only in that that your joy will be made full. Jesus came personally to you and I so that we would know there is someone who can sympathize with our struggles. You know, John went on to say in John 1 and verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, listen to this, full of grace and truth. You know, this is often overlooked, but when Jesus came to this earth, He was full on truth and he was full on grace at the exact same time. And this is why it was necessary for Jesus to come to us in flesh and blood. Jesus, if you will, the Son of God, has always existed. There's never been a time when God the Son has not existed. But he was born in flesh 2,000 years ago. And there's a reason. Because even though we can learn truth from a page, you can only receive grace from a person. 
I may be able to read about grace from the Bible, but I can't really know grace until it has been shown to me. That is a relational principle. And so for, for 4,000 years, if you will, the world was living with truth, but it wasn't until Jesus came that we actually began to understand the grace of God that's always been with us. You know, I don't know. Again, this is exciting to me, but for you it may not be. But what makes this so extraordinary, at least to me, is that if you consider it, grace and truth are antagonistic to each other. They they really do fight against each other. If you always stand for truth, then grace suffers. But if you always stand for grace, then truth suffers. And that has always been the tension that we as men and women have experienced because we're always trying to balance out truth with grace and grace with truth. And it's hard sometimes to find that balance within us. In fact, the reality is every one of us in this room naturally leans into one or the other. There are some of you that are truth people and you lean very much into truth. And there's others of you that are grace people and you lean naturally into grace. There are some of you that everything is black and white, yes and no, right and wrong. Everything is broad brushed. You see it that way and it's true, it's true, it's true and that's how you live. In fact, let me just ask and don't be embarrassed because all of us lean in one way or another. How many of you would say, yeah, I'm more of that truth guy. I see things very straight and narrow. Yes. And how many of you? Oh, you are all lying, I'm telling you. How many of you are just more that way? I'm going to tell you I love my wife, but I'm going to tell you she is a truther. My wife is a yes and no and black and white kind of a lady. Now, there are others of us who are lean more in the direction of grace. And we're long-suffering and we're the ones that are always getting trampled on because we just keep going the extra mile and just giving people grace and mercy. Now, let me ask, how many of you lean more in the avenue of grace and mercy, okay? The rest of you are just lying or you're not awake. I don't know. But all of us lean in one direction or another, and that's why we tend to marry the opposite of the way we are. If we are truthers, we marry gracers. If we're gracers, we marry truthers, because we know if we don't have the balance, our kids are going to be a wreck by the time they leave our house. you got to have that balance. But here is what is great about Christ. He was not the balance of truth and grace. He was full-on truth And he was full on grace all the time. He didn't live with that tension. I don't understand it. But there was never a time when Jesus watered down the truth. But there was never a time when he missed an opportunity to show grace. It's amazing. It's a paradox. He was full on grace and truth at the same time. He called sin, sin. He called sinners, sinners. But then he went to a cross and died for them. He was fully truth and he was fully grace at all times. And that's what makes his life wonderful. And that's why he had to be revealed in the flesh because we would never have known what that grace looked like had it not been personally demonstrated by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And nowhere do I see the perfect union of these two forces, truth and grace, come together more than in Hebrews chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles and you want to, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse number 12. If you don't, it's going to be up on the screen, but I do believe if you're a follower of Christ, you should bring your Bible to church. How many of you say amen to that? Have your Bible with you. I want you to see it. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom he must give account. This is truth. This is truth in action. The Word of God, His truth, is living, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces right down to the heart of the matter. This is truth in action. The truth of God's Word is living, which means that it is relevant, that it speaks to all generations. The Word of God is unchanging, it is unalterable. God does not change His moral feelings towards anything, no matter what the generations may say. His word remains the same. It's always speaking at all times. The word of God is powerful, which means that it cannot be stopped. Can it be resisted? Absolutely. But you can only resist it for so long. Eventually, the word of God will accomplish everything that it was sent into the earth to accomplish. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's very important to understand the sword that he had in mind when he wrote this. He's not talking about the broad sword that you would take into battle and fight the enemy with. He's talking about a smaller dagger-like sword. He's talking about one that was very razor sharp and it was used in close quarters. It was used to end someone's life swiftly and silence them quickly. And it's that sword that he's talking about. And the thought that is being laid out here is that the Word of God gets down to the very heart of the matter. That it gets in between the soul and the the spirit and the joints of and the marrow and it literally can discern not only the motives and the intents of men and women but even the very thoughts you think and it reveals who we really are before God that's an amazing thought. The Word of God lays open the heart of man to the degree that it not only knows our thoughts, but it knows the motive and the intent of our heart. Now, that's frightening. Because let's be honest, when we judge one another, what do we typically judge on? What we see, what we hear. We listen to what they say. We watch what they do. We watch where they go. And we make a determination of their goodness or their badness based entirely upon their actions and their words. But God says, no, no, no. I go much deeper than that because I'm not just looking at what they're doing and where they're going and what they're saying. I'm actually able to discern what's motivating them. So you watch them do good things and you immediately think they're good people, but I know that they did it for selfish reasons. They didn't do it to honor me. He says, I know the intents of their heart. I even know the thoughts that they are thinking. None of us are hidden from the eyes of God. He has seen everything you have ever done. 
He has heard every conversation you have ever had. He has been with you on every website you have ever gone to. Well, it got really quiet right there. He has heard every conversation you have had with your wife. He has heard every conversation you had with your girlfriend about your husband. He has not missed anything. And even if you happen to be a very quiet person, he knows every thought you've ever had. And he knows the motive behind it all. The Bible says he has seen everything. He has heard everything. His eyes are open to everything. And one day we will all stand before him and give an account of our lives. Believe it or not, that penetrative, that piercing ministry of Christ was prophesied even before Jesus was named, actually. Many of you know that, um, that when Jesus was brought into the temple by Joseph and Mary to be circumcised and his name would be officially given at that time, as they walk in, they run into a man named Simeon. And Simeon was an elderly man who had actually been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not taste death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And immediately the Spirit bears witness when he sees the child in Joseph and Mary's arms that this is the Christ. And he goes and he takes up Jesus in his arms and he begins to weep. And he says, now I can depart in peace for my eyes have seen the consolation of Israel. But then he begins to prophesy. And he turns to Mary and he says this in verse 35. Yes. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. And he is speaking of the sorrow that Mary will be gripped with when she sees her son crucified on the cross. But he says it is necessary so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He made it very clear that one of the greatest reasons that Jesus was dying upon the cross was to lay open the heart of man and to reveal that man is a sinner against God. Many, many years later, John would actually be transported to heaven and he would be given a vision of the end times. But before he had that vision of the end times, he met Christ in his present glorified state. And as he's describing him, he says in Revelation 1 and verse 16 that he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And as I was reading that the other day, I was immediately reminded of how you go into an operating room and there are these intense lights that lay over the body that is going to be operated on because the doctors have got to see clearly everything that is there. And in the same way, the light of the Holy Spirit will shine upon your heart and reveal everything as the Word of God lays you open. He sees everything. He knows everything. Nothing has been hidden. You can hit your delete button all you want to, but God never forgets where you were. God knows it all. And never once has Christ compromised truth. He has never watered it down. He holds men and women accountable to that truth. Now, I would assume that the reason we're so quiet right now, not everybody's jumping out of their seat, is because that is terrifying. Because all of us know that we have not lived that way. 
that we have lived recklessly as if somehow this was being hidden because I closed my door or I hit the delete. It's terrifying. But then watch what he says in the next verse. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us therefore come boldly. And I've never loved the translation of that word. Because when I think of boldness, it just kind of carries the, the connotation of arrogance. We don't go before God arrogantly. Really, the word should probably be translated with confidence. Let us come with confidence to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is grace. If the first two verses were truth, then these next three are certainly grace. And what's interesting is that they come from the very same source, the Word of God. It cuts us wide open and knows everything about us. But on the next side, we see the grace of God that is always willing to forgive and restore in Jesus' name. This is grace. And if there is one thing that God has shown us from the very beginning, it is that His preferred method in dealing with the sin of mankind has always been and will always be with grace and mercy. It is not God's first thought to judge people when we sin. No more than it is your thought to punish your child when they disobey you first. At the very beginning, you want to show mercy. But you know if you always show mercy, you're going to have a brat on your hands in 18 years. You understand the conflict. And the same thing is true with God. God's first and preferred method in dealing with sin has always been grace and mercy. How many of you are glad that we serve a long-suffering God today in Jesus' name. It's amazing to me because the thought of nothing being hidden from the Lord is terrifying. It is frightening to know that there is a God who knows me better than I know myself. But then there is immediately that thrill of hope that comes into your heart when you realize in spite of it, we have a great high priest. Not just a high priest, but a great high priest. Not just one of many high priests, but a great and final high priest. Because the word great there means that there is no other. There is no other high priest. What Christ did, no one else can better. No one else can compare. He is our great high priest. Now, some of you may not understand the significance of that, but under the Old Testament sacrificial system, the worshiper was not permitted to come to God alone. The Old Testament worshiper had to come with a sacrifice to offer, but they didn't even offer the sacrifice. They had to give it to a priest, and the priest would offer it to God on behalf of the worshiper. And the reason is because God had a moral obligation to uphold the law and to punish sinners. And even though God was gracious, He still had the responsibility to uphold the truth that He had. 
And he realized that if he did, that he would have to punish the sinner. But God's first desire is to forgive when it's possible. So here's what God did. God could not identify with our weaknesses. God does not sin. God does not tempt, nor is he tempted. He doesn't know the struggles of living in a flesh and blood body like you and I. So he knew, I can't judge with that grace and that mercy. So he said, you know what? From the Levites, I'm going to raise up priests who are just like them so that they can sympathize with their weaknesses. And they'll receive their offerings and they'll intercede on their behalf. I will accept the sacrifice and I will forgive their sins and it was a wonderful system but it was temporary it was temporary and it was limited because even those priests ordained by God were still flesh and blood and they still sinned and they could sympathize with you but they couldn't provide energy so that you could be free from sin once and for all and so it was a temporary measure but now we have a great high priest and he identifies him he's Jesus the son of God and we are told specifically that this Christ can sympathize with our weaknesses. That word weaknesses is an all-encompassing word. It means physical weakness. It means emotional weakness. It means spiritual or intellectual weakness. It doesn't matter what you and I go through in life. Jesus has tasted it. He can sympathize because he was a human being just like you and I. Being in a body, he knew the cruelty of death. He knew abandonment. He knew pain. He understood the feeling of shame and the pressure of temptation. Even resisting it to the shedding of blood and tears in the garden. He knows what it's like to cry yourself to sleep at night and wake up weak even in the morning. He knows what it's like to go throughout the day with a burden upon your heart. He was tempted at all points just like we are. But here is the good news. Yet without sin. He never once failed so he can provide for you and I what no other priest can do. And that's not just sympathy, but the energy so that sin will no longer have dominion over you, but that you can be free indeed in Jesus' mighty name. Can somebody give God the praise for that this morning? See, this is why the virgin birth is so big. And, and, you know, I remember going back maybe 12 or 13 years ago, because I know we were still over in the old sanctuary. But I remember that there was a book that came on the scene in the evangelical church. It was a book that was written by a man named Rob Bell. And Rob Bell challenged the doctrine of the virgin birth and actually suggested that it's not necessary that Jesus be born of a virgin. That it has no bearing upon your salvation. And so there was room within the Christian faith for those who rejected the idea of a virgin birth. And I remember how so many youth pastors and college pastors bought into this book. Even in the Assemblies of God, they were raving about this book. And I remember that Christmas, I stood up and I thundered week after week about the virgin birth. Because it is a big deal. If Jesus had only been fully human, then he would have been no different than any other person. He could have sympathized with our weaknesses, but he could not have provided any way out. But being fully God at the same time, born by the Holy Spirit, not only does he have the ability to come alongside and say, I understand, but he has the ability to say, now I send you the same spirit that raised me from the dead so that you don't have to live in dead works anymore, but you can live victorious in Jesus' mighty name. How many of you are glad? That we have that great high priest in Jesus' name. He doesn't just sympathize with you. 
He energizes you. And the Bible says that he passed through the heavens. The significance of that is this. That every priest up to Jesus was able to go into a tabernacle or to a tent or to a temple and offer up sacrifices. But because it was done on the earth, it was temporal. And that's why blood had to continue to be shed daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly. And that's why it had to be shed daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly at year after year, decade after decade, millennium after millennium, because it was only a temporal work. But when your Savior ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, He entered into eternity and He made a final sacrifice before the living God Almighty. It's done once and for all. There's no other thing that has to be done. It's bought and paid for and we can be victorious through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Come on, somebody say amen to that today and this was meant he says to give us confidence that when we approach the throne of grace we are approaching a savior who not only knows the truth but is willing to show grace we don't have to hide anything from him because not only is he able to identify with our weaknesses but he is also able to empower us so that we would be free from them in Jesus' name. And this is why I know there's always someone praying for you. Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he hears you, he sees you, because he's been there. He's gone through it himself, and he can stand before the Father and intercede for us in our weakness, so that we may obtain mercy and grace in everything, in Jesus' name. We serve a great God who went to great measures to secure your victory. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people sat, or came to him, and they sat down, and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they'd set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say, Jesus? And this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. And understand what was going on here. They thought that they finally had Jesus caught. Because if Jesus said, well, I think you should show grace to them, then technically they could have stoned Jesus right along with her because he would be denying the law that said such as she should be stoned. Therefore, but, but then again, if he had said, well, I think you should stone her, then they would have said, then the people that had followed him because of the message of grace would have said, well, we're not going to follow you anymore. This is not grace either. So they thought they had Jesus in, in a, between a rock and a hard place. There'd be no way out. And I love it. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. Their blood must have been boiling at this point. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, Yeah, I think you should stone her. And he who is without sin among you, 
Let him throw the stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. You had to wonder what he was writing. Maybe the Ten Commandments. Maybe the names of their girlfriends. I don't know. But whatever it wrote, it was heavy. Because the Bible says then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. I love that progression. It started with the oldest because the oldest knew there's no way we're going to beat this guy. And it took a little while for the younger guys to figure that out. Okay. And I love this. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Isn't that interesting? Because now she is left with the only one who could stone her. Because he was the sinless lamb of God. So he could stone her. But then he said to her, after he'd raised himself up and saw no one there but the woman, woman, where are your accusers now? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Now, if he'd stopped right there, he would have compromised the truth. But he didn't stop. Listen to what he says next. Go and sin no more. Sin no more. He's standing on the truth. This is sin. What you've done is sin against God. But when he said, go, he showed grace. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to give you an opportunity now to live right before the Lord. You serve a Savior today who did the unthinkable. While we're all flesh trying to be God, He is God and became flesh so that he could sympathize with you no matter what you're going through, even testing and temptation, so that with boldness you could come to his throne and not only obtain mercy when you fail, but grace so you don't have to keep failing, but can overcome in Jesus' name. He's always praying for you. And he deserves all of our praise today. In Jesus' mighty name. Bless God. Bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Can you just stand to your feet here all across the auditorium? And would you just lift your hands right where you are here today? Just lift them. And just thank him for his mercy that endures forever. Just thank him right there. Hallelujah. Bless your name, Lord. Hallelujah. Father, I had this thought this week that there are a limited amount of scriptures that we can use at Christmas time. But maybe that was meant to remind us that there are just some truths that we need to reiterate at least once a year. 
And I pray, Lord, that today we would remember the significance of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. That though the word brings truth and nothing is hidden from you, the word also embodies grace so that even our weaknesses and our struggles and our fights and the difficulties of life, we can come to you and you can provide not only the ability to sympathize with us, but even energize us to make it through. And this Christmas season, only you, only you know the truth of every man and every woman that is here today. We come in here on Sunday morning, we put on our Sunday smiles, and and we tell everybody that everything is okay, but you know what's really going on. You see it all. Nothing's hidden from And what you've instilled within us in this portion of Scripture is don't let that fact keep you from me. Because even though I know it, you have a high priest in heaven praying for you, showing grace. So may we run to the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. And may we find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Encourage our hearts this day. I pray in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Would you give the Lord praise in his house one last time here today? Bless God. I love you all. I pray that you have a wonderful week. Come back tonight, 6 o'clock, for our choir and friends concert. God bless you. Have a great afternoon.